Henry Hudson. If you live in or ever travel through the New York area, you hear his name a lot. We drive his parkway, we pay to cross his bridge, we marvel at his majestic river. Some of our children go to his schools, we visit his parks. I myself even spent three tumultuous years living in his county in New Jersey. But what do we really know about him? Ask yourself, ask the person next to you. The truth is that most people, wherever they may be, know very little about this man. Now we all do it. In the course of our busy lives, we tend to rush right past and thereby disregard the names imprinted in our immediate world, especially in a place as busy as New York. We don't always have the time to stop and investigate the names behind the Tweed Courthouse or Stuyvesant Town or the Hudson River. But Henry Hudson, we see his name all over the place. So who was he? This is the one human most singularly responsible for unveiling the place that the entire world now knows as New York. So why don't we know more about him? Well, let's ask the good questions. Like, how did he get here? Where was he from? Who was he working for or with? What were his intentions? And why didn't he stay? Well, I'm sure there's plenty of you out there who already do know that Henry Hudson was English. That he hailed from London. So then his ship would have been commissioned by the English, correct? No, it was a Dutch ship. Huh? Well, but anyway, he was trying to discover, um, New York? Well, no. Aside from the fact that this place would not be named New York for another 55 years, Hudson never targeted this island, let alone even knew for sure or cared that it existed. And he was actually looking for China, which he believed was somewhere up past Albany. Wait a minute. Where? But somehow, Henry Hudson did eventually happen upon this place in the beginning of September 1609. And what he found was a veritable Eden, nothing short of breathtaking, where the crystal clear waters of a deep natural port, teeming with fish and oysters, lapped gently against a shore of rolling hills and towering oaks, edible berries and pristine orchids, and wolves, mountain lions, black bears, deer, bobcats. But when Hudson and his men got here, there were people here too. And that Eden would disappear in the dust-up of the first recorded gang fight in this land between an aggressive band of suspicious locals and five of the wary and well-armed newcomers, resulting in a wake of blood, casualties, and devastation on both sides. And as the smoke clears on this first ruckus chapter of this enchanted little island, the course of life in this land and on this planet would change irreversibly forever. podcast island the story of how this culture this world this island the place we now know as new york came to be my name is chance kelly and i look forward to you saying wow history is cool episode one the halfa man the voyage to manhattan in 1609 henry hudson I believe that characters define history. 
And history becomes much more vivid for me when I compare historical figures to contemporary people. But with Henry Hudson, I find that very difficult to do, largely because the profession of exploring the unknown parts of the globe in powerless boats with zero communication and or navigational technology, modern technology anyway, is just something that has no real comparison today. But to really understand the type of person that Henry Hudson was, it's important to grasp that he was as much P.T. Barnum as he was Captain Queeg. On the one hand, he had to be a bit of a showman. In order to get hired to go on these international voyages of discovery, there was a considerable song and dance that these navigators had to go through in order to be entrusted with such a momentous undertaking. In other words, they had to present their case to the investment body or company that would potentially be sending them on this mission. Hudson or any other navigator would have to illustrate his fitness, his experience, his navigational knowledge, data, theories. And this investment body, this group of serious, wealthy, shrewd, often grouchy businessmen would listen. And from behind hard, serious 17th century poker faces, they would decide. After all, this group would be paying for the ship, the crew, the provisions, the captain's salary, and life insurance policy. And these businessmen were not going to go through all that trouble for just anybody. So yes, just as any person in any century raising money, pitching investors, it requires a bit of show. And one of the more compelling dynamics of Henry Hudson is this bizarre dichotomy that he was made up of. While on the one hand, he was remarkably introverted, a man so deep inside his own mind, he was nearly impossible to really get to know. Yet he also had this remarkable showman's track record as well. After all, dramatic flair was not unavailable in the quaint little town of London in Hudson's day. I mean, there was a certain playwright, the same age as Hudson, right up the Thames, who had more than a passing interest in this wild game of international exploration and navigation. Yes, and that neighbor, by the name of William Shakespeare, just happened to be writing a play called The Tempest about this time, based on these very such voyages of the day to this new world. And two of the foremost authorities on such expeditions, not just in England, but on the entire planet at the time, were Captain John Smith, yes, the Pocahontas guy, and his good friend and exploration associate, Henry Hudson. Yes, so, whatever it took to be able to earn these contracts to head these remarkably complex and costly expeditions, Hudson definitely had it. Because Henry Hudson was commissioned once in each of four consecutive years by three different companies from two different nations to do so. Now hold that thought, because we'll be right back. Yes, in spite of the fierce competition, Hudson really knew how to do it. He had that intangible ability to schmooze, to hobnob, to sling that verbal horse manure as effectively as any intrepid seaman in the early years of the 17th century. But when you couple that with the other prevailing side of Hudson's makeup, this ruminative, exceedingly cerebral side, shaded by many, many dark hues and much mystery, what you start to see is a man of remarkable, um, 
what's the word? Nebulosity, I guess. And intrigue. Hudson's almost like an amalgamation of Burt Lancaster's character in The Rainmaker, Robert Duvall's Great Santini, Noah. You all remember Noah, right? Yeah, the eccentric old dude with all the animals on the boat. That Noah. Michael Milken. Do you remember him? Or maybe Michael Douglas's character from the movie Wall Street? And then, of course, Captain Ahab. Yes, the crazy old guy chasing Moby Dick. Because just like each of these indelible characters, Hudson is as impassioned as he is obsessed, to the point that his spirit affects those he encounters. His inner drive and intellectual depth is so compelling that it makes other people stop and say, he can't just be making this stuff up. He has to know something that we don't. Or if if you imagine Robert Shaw's Quint from Jaws, Hudson's almost like Quint, but merged with the Richard Dreyfuss character Hooper. Really dark, serious, scary, and also really, really smart. That's sort of who Hudson was. Yes, with that little bit of Tony Robbins salesman kind of thing mixed in albeit a really salty and jaded Tony Robbins. He's one of those guys where there's just something in his eyes, something that you can't quite put your finger on. But when certain ambitious and competitive and eager people see it, they simply can't ignore it, and they have to have it. Or at least (laughs) have a fighting chance to be able to understand what the heck it's all about. And I think that's really the ultimate reason why Henry Hudson did successfully get hired four different times by three different groups in two different countries, which leads us to a really integral part of this overall epic story. Because one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about studying and illustrating this particular swath of history, the first 300 years of the colonization of Manhattan Island, is because I firmly believe in my heart and in my soul that this is our true American history. And I believe it is very much our lost American history. Now, why do I say that? And how can I say that? After all, these are all Dutch coming over here, right? And this is Dutch history, isn't it? And Hudson was English, and he wasn't even working for the English when he came here, right? Well, yes, that is all pretty much true, but let's just slow down for a minute, because here it is. I don't believe that American grit and American ideals and American innovation and American drive started with the Declaration of Independence in 1776, or even with the Stamp Act in 1765. Of course, those are both pivotal major levers in this whole process, no doubt, but it didn't start there. And I think it's easy to lose sight of the many, many things that happened here before then, largely because it it doesn't quite fit into any 
educational box. And therefore, it is just not really taught anywhere. Well, not many places anyway. And therefore, it's not really talked about that much. But what I'm saying is that excluding the initial endeavor that the Dutch pursued for profit and trade in immediate reaction to Henry Hudson's 1609 voyage, which we will get into in detail, that the reason that Europeans came here and stayed at all beginning in the 1620s was a singular reason. And that was because of the oppression imposed on them from where they had come. No matter where we come from, if, like me, you trace your family roots in this country to the New York area, or what was called New Netherland before it was New York, which was basically the geographic equivalent of today's tri-state region, then you most likely are the descendant of a refugee. I am. Most of us are. And that's what this island is. It's a refuge against oppression since the 17th century. And that is an incredible foundation to stand on. And that is why this island is not just an island geographically, but it's an ideal. It's a culture. It's a mindset that this is the true and righteous center of the universe. Made up of all kinds of people from every corner of that universe. Strong people who refuse to accept tyranny, oppression, taxation without representation, who demand their liberties and are willing to fight and die for them. And it doesn't matter if you came from England or from the Netherlands or from Belgium, which didn't actually exist yet until the 19th century, but which plays a huge role in this overall epic story, or from France, Spain, Portugal, Africa, Asia, or anywhere in between. The ultimate reason that your ancestors came and stayed on the island of Manhattan and the colonies which emitted outward from it was to live free and start anew within this refuge. But now, these refugees, they didn't always come from that far away. And the reach and significance of this refuge started to define this island quite early on, even amongst other not-too-distant settlements. In fact, in 1630, when a 12-year-old boy decided to run away from the rather unpleasant and fledgling English colony of Jamestown in Virginia to escape the oppression imposed on him there, where did he go? Well, he went to Manhattan, of course, where he became the preeminent tobacco cultivation consultant at age 12 for director Pierre Minoui, himself a Walloon refugee, and also doubled as the colony's drummer boy. Now, you may not recognize the name Pierre Minoui because most people pronounce it as Peter Minuit, the guy who bought Manhattan. But in fact, he was Walloon Pierre Minoui. Hold on. Walloon? What's a Walloon? 
<laughs> well, we'll get to all that in due time, I promise. But what I can tell you is there were no Walloons in Jamestown <laughs> or in the Plymouth or Massachusetts Bay colonies. That's for sure. But see, this was the place for all that. Innovation, diversity, tolerance across the board from the beginning. That's what this place is. And that's what it has stood for. And that's why you're going to love this entire story. And this is why I firmly believe that this is our true American history. And a pivotal component of this history is understanding and recognizing who these 17th century Dutch really were. They were world-class competitors with world-class chutzpah. And a good portion of their world-class competition came from the English. And the thing about these 17th century Dutch, they were doers, survivors, underdogs, and usually victors. And this burgeoning Dutch Republic was the emerging world leader in international sea navigation and exploration. There is no doubt. So if they want to stay on top of that game, they've got to stay on the cutting edge. And the cutting edge in this era, in that game, was this very thing that everybody was so desperately searching to find. So, <laughs> after their top explorer uh, died trying to find it and then got a sea named after him, the Barents Sea, Willem Barents, they looked for the next best candidate, and they didn't particularly care whether it was Dutch, French, Spanish, Portuguese, or English. And when these hard-nosed Dutch businessmen looked into the eyes of Henry Hudson, something just told them that this is the guy that must know the way. And that look in Hudson's eye was compelling enough for the directors of the Dutch East India Company to hire him away from the English and the French and hand him their yacht called the Halvaman, or the Half Moon, in order to go find this thing once and for all. Um, now just hold on. <laughs> exactly what is this thing? that they're all trying so hard to find. Well, it's something called the Northern Passage. And it was a theory, really, not based on any hard fact, but the theory said that over the top of the globe existed a waterway shortcut to Asia. Now, in an era when international sea navigation and trade routes dominate the commercial world, that kind of stuff really matters, especially to a commercially driven upstart nation like the Dutch Republic. Now, why was Asia so important? Because that's where the good stuff was. Spices, teas, porcelain, silks. And why was it so coveted? Well, because as it tends to go, you couldn't get it in Europe. So, of course, it was highly sought after. Now, the existing route to Asia at this time was around the southern tip of Africa, which took a little bit of time, a year in fact, one way, and cost a little bit of dough, and usually a few lives along the way. 
Now, the theory on this theoretical northern passage was that it would reduce the voyage to six months in total. So, thereby reducing 75% of travel time and expense. I don't need an MBA to understand that that's good for business. In fact, it was such a big deal in the day that there were companies that existed solely for the purpose of finding this elusive and even mythical Northern Passage. I mean, it was so potentially valuable that world powers invested major time and expense into explorers to go find this thing. The English with John Davis and Martin Frobisher, the Dutch with the aforementioned Willem Barents, and the French with Jacques Cartier, Um, for the record, none of whom had found it yet. I mean, in certain ways, it's really kind of absurd. It's almost like forming a company to search for the Fountain of Youth. And sure enough, the company that hired Hudson to do this the first two times was just such a concern, called the English Muscovy Company. Hudson was commissioned by the Muscovy Company in both 1607 and 1608 to set off in their ship the Hopewell, both times to search the northeast part of the planet, first to go straight over the top of the North Pole, and the second time to go over the top of Russia, <laughs> neither of which would happen, because as Hudson and his freezing men would see with their own awestruck eyes, a wooden sailboat, not much larger than a city bus, is not going to penetrate the ice that dominates the Arctic Circle. I mean, <laughs> it's really hard to put this into any kind of perspective today. I guess in a way you could compare Hudson to people like Charles Lindbergh, for instance, or maybe Felix Baumgartner the Australian who parachuted from outer space in 2012. But you could also compare him to someone like Elon Musk as another outside-of-the-box thinker who tends to thrive in industries where the default expectation is complete and unmitigated failure. But the most incredible thing to me about Hudson is that though he is essentially the individual pioneer responsible for unveiling this incredible place we now know as New York, he never had any intention of ever staying here. In fact, he never even planned on coming here in the first place. Now hold that thought, because we'll be right back. So, the very first character in this story, the 300-year history of the colonization of Manhattan, the man who introduces what would become the greatest city in the modern age to the rest of the world, did it all by complete accident. That's absolutely accurate. His arrival at the, the mouth of the river that's named after him was a complete accident. He never intended to find a river. He wanted to find a passage to, to India. My friend Yab Jacobs, a great guy who, in addition to making the history of Dutch colonization his life and career, seems to me like he's got to have some direct line into God given the level of knowledge and insight he has to the things that happened around here four and 500 years ago. They took advantage of the tide and went straight on past Manhattan. So actually one of the reasons that Hudson was able to sail on, because as you know, the Hudson is not actually a river, but a tidal estuary. Mm -hmm. If Hudson had no noticed an absence of ebb and flow, he would have immediately turned back. There was a very good chance in his mind that that was the passage he was looking for the Northern Passage, or led to the Northern Passage. 
That's that's right. Yes, um, the northwestern passage was what he was looking for. Um, keep in mind that the thinking was that if there was any landmass between Europe and Asia, it could not be very wide. Actually, Farazano even thought that the open water west of the outer barrier islands of the North Carolina coast was the Pacific Ocean. So, <laughs> if you've ever been to the Outer Banks of North Carolina, then you probably know some of these skinny little islands that Yap is talking about here. Nags Head, Avon, Hatteras, those areas. And in some places, that strip of island is not more than 150 yards wide. And what Yap is explaining here is that when Verrazano sailed here in 1524, the European knowledge of this landmass, of the entire landmass, of what they were simply calling the New World, but which was, in fact, North America, was so uncertain on their end that they actually thought that the water on the west side of Nags Head and Avon and Hatteras, the Pimlico Sound, basically, was the Pacific Ocean. So, in other words, they underestimated their 150-yard estimate by about 5 million yards. Hey, but in all fairness to my guy Giovanni, without Google Maps, I wouldn't be able to figure out any of it either. So, And while Verrazano may have been here 85 years before Hudson, Hudson didn't actually have all that much more intelligence on the land or waterways over here. These voyages were expensive, complicated, rare, and very often never made it back to Europe to share their intel anyway. And even if they did, countries like France and England and the Dutch Republic were not openly sharing their intel on international navigation. That was proprietary information. Well, it was supposed to be anyway. So for Hudson, after trying the Delaware first and looking at just about every inlet that he could find, this river turned out to be a good chance that would lead to Asia. I don't know if there's anyone who can tell this any better than Yap. The story of this place, of Manhattan Island, And it includes a narrative that defies a lot of the conversations today. And had the Dutch not colonized when they did and where they did along this great river following Englishman Henry Hudson's discovery, then this place would never have become the exact melting pot or salad bowl, take your pick, or refuge for religious and racial oppression that it eventually became. With a simple twist of fate, the complexion of this place could have changed immeasurably. It could have just as easily been colonized by the French, for instance, who were aggressively pursuing a lucrative fur trade to the north, or even by the Spanish, who were already busy in St. Augustine and Santa Fe, or even possibly by Sweden, who would take its own swing at colonization of the New World along the Delaware River just three short decades hence. Under the leadership of the very aforementioned Walloon Pierre Menwee, who, by 1638, would be a disgruntled former New Netherland director who had now accepted employment from 12-year-old Queen Christina of Sweden for the purpose of forming a whaling colony on the Delaware Bay. But that, too, is another episode down the line. And that's something else that amazes me about this story, the sheer randomness of it all, that as soon as Hudson discovers this place, he just as soon departs from it. And if not for some shiny beaver pelts that his crewmen just happened to have received in trade from the Indians in exchange for some hatchets and spoons along the way, there's no saying how the trajectory of this history changes. We tend to think 
of colonization as a straightforward process. But what we don't see are those many colonies, those many trips that actually didn't yield anything. This was trial and error all along the way. The English, the French, the Dutch, the Swedes and the Delaware and many others tried to found a colony and didn't get on with it. There are so many more failures in colonization than there are successes. Trial and error, success and failure. And no, while it's not always pretty, it's not always horrific. Truth is, it's a lot of both. This story is a drama. It's also an adventure. It's also a tragedy and part love story. And yes, even at times, a hilarious comedy. This is an epic journey into mankind's quest for a better life, for freedom and justice and dignity and individuality and everything that happens along the way. It's life. It's complicated. And the human race is complicated. However, that is not exactly why Henry Hudson came here in 1609. What do other people think about Henry Hudson? This enigma about the insidious international conflicts that he propagated, the turmoil and violence among his crews, his tortured psyche, his unsettled wandering soul, the soul that probably continues to wander the river and the bay that bear his name to this day. So there was another certain friend uh, whom I thought it would be fun to ask, who just <laughs> happens to be from the same place that Hudson came from, London, and who has had an opportunity to spend some time here in Manhattan. A lot more time than Hudson ever spent. You may know this young lady as Alaria Sand from Game of Thrones, but you may also know her as my on-screen nemesis from the ABC series For Life. But however you know her, you know how infinitely talented she is. So, without further ado, it is my honor to introduce you to my friend, Miss Indira Varma. Welcome, Warden. Thank you very much, Chance. That's a very generous introduction. Oh, come on. You're, you're too modest. And congrats, congrats on the second season. Thank you. Yeah. Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. very exciting. I'm, I can't wait to come back to New York, actually. I bet. Yeah. I bet. How's things in London? What's What's it like over there these days? Oh, my goodness. So when I'm Everything not reading about history or podcasting about it or exploring with my 12-year-old, I'm also an actor, and um, I've had the opportunity to work on Indira's show, For Life, on ABC. And she's got a great role. She plays a warden, which is, I guess, a little unusual, a female warden. And at some point, she's deemed to be too soft of a touch, and they bring me in, you know, to be the hammer. And I don't know why. It's just always what I tend to get hired to play, these hard-ass jerky types. But she and I have some great confrontational scenes and some, there's some good antipathy. But it's hard because she's such a nice lady, and she's got such a great English accent. It's, it's so hard to be mad at her on screen. But I guess that's showbiz, right? <laughs> We were talking about empathising with what would it be like if, you know, which is a classic actor question, isn't it? Right. What if? And actually that sort of opened it up to me. I, You know, whether it was looking at Elizabethan England or what if we lived like that? And suddenly I was interested. This is the thing about history. It's so much more layered than people realise because all it is is life that has already happened. These people that we study, so many of them in New York, the study of Manhattan that this project involves are, are not well known. But you look at these horrible figures throughout history, na just name one, they mm -hmm. all had 
I got to be careful. They all had compelling and some likable qualities or they wouldn't yeah. have gotten where they were. Charisma or whatever. They, yeah, at the exactly. very least, they had charisma. They had great courage. Intelligence. Intelligence. Some of them had great charm. This is when it fascinates me, when you really start examining the characters. And again, yes. the characters, to me, define the history. Definitely. And you can't stereotype. You can't go by what people say about someone. You got to look into it and see what does Chance think about Willem Kieft? What does Indira think about Lady Deborah Moody? But (laughs) this is what matters. You want to tell the history of the politics, but not the politics of the history, right? Let people decide for themselves, but Lay it out as accurately as you can. So quickly, tell me about Gary Oldman. Tell me <laughs> anything you want, but he's like a god to me. Ever since Sydney um, He loves photography so, and he's a really good photographer, yeah. Is he, yeah? He collects cameras, yeah. Oh, he's a so really cool. cool, cool guy. I have really heard generous. that. Oh, man, I would yeah. love to work I with love, that guy. I, I literally only did a week with him playing his wife. Um, I just loved uh, his ease and we would improvise a bit and... Yeah, he was really cool. He was really lovely. And not just a movie star. They're proper actors, aren't they? Oh, yeah, God. He's yeah, just, he's, yeah. He could do it all. He could do anything. Yeah, like him, guys like him and Duvall and, oh. and, and Denzel. Yeah. Like, I yeah. could watch them yeah. take a nap and I wouldn't move. They're and incredible. Meryl. We have to throw a woman of, in Of course. No, no, no. Of course. <laughs> See, there you go. There we go. Okay. Yeah. Yes, she's incredible. So let's talk about this cat, Henry Hudson. Well, you have to start, apart from the fact that there's a Hudson River. Okay, so we know that. That's Listen, that's a good start because that really was what he was looking for when he came this direction. When he started into the New York Bay, he thought that that was possibly the passage to China. So he right. said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go up that river. And along the way, oh, what, what's that pretty green place over there with all those fires and all those Algonquins gesturing to us? But the thing is, is Hudson was a man on the move. Now, this guy did not like to sit still, at least for the last four years of his life. We know that. So let's back up just a little bit and give a little bit of background on what had transpired the year before in order to propel him onto this voyage. He he came into Gravesend in, in your part of town. Yeah. September 5th, 1608, after his second voyage looking for the Northern Passage. That was for the, the English Muscovy Company. Now, you have, to, you have to fill me in here. The Muscovy Company are who? So this was a company that was created in the middle of the 16th century uh, for the express purpose of finding the Northern Passage. There was a lot of the world that was not known at that time. So yes, this was a serious race to find. It was. It's not unlike the race to to put a man on the moon. Mm. So there was oh, great yeah, yeah, profit, yeah. potential profit to be made if you were to find and control new sea routes to various areas, specifically to Asia. But Russia controlled, among other things, the fur trade. And the furs right. were very, it wasn't just to be fancy and have, wrap a fur around you. You had to keep in mind. It was, they, they were necessary. They were necessary. They? You couldn't get a down coat, couldn't get a, right. a Gore-Tex uh, anything. <laughs> but it wasn't yeah. just that. There was a process for making hats. You took the finer portions of the, of the fur pelts. They strained that out of the furs. And that was very effective in making hats waterproof. So they were British, but were they working on behalf of the East they, India Company? They were. Muscovy was an English operation. England did have an East India Company itself, but the East India Company that 
Hudson was commissioned by in 1609 when he found Manhattan was for the mm. Dutch East India Company. Oh. So why was he working for the Dutch? Ah, see, that Indira Varma. Or is it Indra? I'm not sure. But what I do know is she's a smart cookie because she asks the good questions. And the answer to that question is probably not exactly what you might think it is. But we'll get to that answer in our very next episode. Dr. Yap Jacobs is affiliated with the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He has also taught at the University of Leiden, Harvard University, UPenn, and Cornell University. His remarkable book, The Colony of New Netherland by Cornell University Press, is available at most major booksellers. Miss Indira Varma can be seen on the series This Way Up on Hulu, as well as in the upcoming series Obi-Wan Kenobi from Disney. Island is an original production researched, written, and produced by Chance Kelly and Dr. Yap Jacobs, executive producer Alec Baldwin for Cavalry Media and iHeart. And I am your host, Chance Kelly, thanking you for boarding our voyage of discovery en route to saying, wow, history is cool. We'll see you next time.